Just a moment, we'll begin reading at verse 18. If you weren't here with us last week, you need to know, we we began to see then uh, what our Lord is telling us. We, We started at verse 12 last week. And what he said there flows into what we're hearing this morning. Uh, He described for us there two relationships that are created as the saving love of God comes to sinners in his son, Christ Jesus. There's a new relationship that is made between us as his people then. Uh, We are called to love each other as Christ has loved us and given his life for us. So we heard that. We went to 1 John and, heard, and saw much more description about what that would look like. We also listened as our Lord described newness in our relationship to him as our Savior. He spoke of our relationship with him in terms of friendship. All of this consequence of the saving love of God in Christ, love was central And this morning, the fourth word in the text we're about to read is the word hate. And the first paragraph here, what we're going to see this morning, will mention hate eight times. And so it it seems like a fundamental change of subject has taken place. But that's not true at all. What we're going to see, in fact, is that he's still very much talking about the same basic subject. He's still talking about the effect that is had when God's saving love in Christ comes forth. What we hear about this morning is that the effect that it has upon those who reject it looks a particular way. He shares that with us. He warns us of what that will look like. The the problem that the sinful world has is that when the good news of God's salvation in Christ comes forth, the very nature of the situation means that that has to involve bad news and then good news. After all, the whole concept of salvation implies, doesn't it, that we are in need of rescue from something. So that a saving love has a lot of things in common with the experience of walking into a doctor's office And hearing him say, would you please close the door behind you as you're coming in? I have some hard things that I need to talk to you about. The hatred that we hear about here stems from offense taken at the revelation of gospel truths. Before we go any further, let's hear what our Lord says about this. If you're able, would you stand with me? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 15. Verses 18 to 27. Our Lord continues in this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever, takes, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Would you be seated? Hatred of us and hatred of our Lord. I'm convinced that we will best understand what the Lord Jesus says here if we proceed in a particular way. Uh, one thing we should do is to be careful to focus this morning, not centrally on the world's hatred of us that is spoken of here, but on the world's hatred of him. We need to focus there because you can tell even as we read it, that was the focus of what Jesus was telling us here. We also need to take the time to recognize the simple fact that his assessment here of the world is true and why that is so. And so then we have three points for the outline of our time this morning. The first thing we will do is simply to acknowledge and understand that the world hates him. Second is for us to see what the world's hatred of Christ is demonstrating. It's especially his point in verses 21 to 25. And then thirdly, to see what therefore then Christ is saying about us as the people who belong to him and represent him in this world. Let's start with what may feel like just a matter of course, but it shouldn't be for us. Let's start with the notion that the world hates him. Look again at verses 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He says there at the beginning, know that the world has hated me before it hated you. I mean, is it really fair for Jesus to make a categorical statement like that? After all, he was greatly praised at many points in his ministry, wasn't he? When he multiplied bread and fish, they wanted to make him king right then and there. In fact, they tried to force him to become their king that afternoon. There, there were huge crowds in awe of him as he healed the sick and the lame. There's a moment in his ministry where Luke 4.22 says, all were speaking well of him. So how can he say this categorically about the world and its posture toward him? Why can't we say that the world has mixed feelings about Jesus? Well, it's because of how the world responded not to his actions, 
but to the revelation of his fundamental claims and goals as he came into the world. When we come into contact with another person, we do the same thing. This is how relationships work. This is how our estimation of other people works. As I meet someone and come to know them, the way I feel about them fundamentally, their fundamental claims and goals, that's going to determine my feelings about other ancillary details of my interactions with them. They determine our estimation of the whole person and therefore of what our posture toward them ought to be. It's not hard to think of examples of how this works. Now, let's name an action that a person might engage in without giving it any context. Let's say you hear about a person who has given some candy to your child. Do you like that person? Well, that's a very hard question to answer right there off the bat, isn't it? It seems like a nice thing to do in general, give someone some candy. What happens when you learn the context that he was giving that candy in order to coax the child into his car to kidnap the child? When you realize that, do you then have mixed feelings about that person? I mean, it's complicated. On the one hand, I like that he's a giver of candy. That's nice. On the other hand, I don't like that he kidnapped that child. We don't struggle in any way with mixed feelings in that context. That's a pretty negative example, but think of a more positive example. The bare action of, of someone taking a knife and cutting someone else, cutting them deeply. How do you feel about the person that did that? Well, if that person turns out to actually be a surgeon that was acting in order to save the life of that person, how do you feel about them then? Do you have mixed feelings about them then? I love that they saved that person's life, but man, I just don't like that they that they cut them. We don't struggle in any way like this. The feelings aren't mixed. You love all of that then, or you hate all of that then, because you love the convictions and goals that drove the whole relationship, the whole situation. And so it is with Jesus. The world loved when its sick were healed, and when its dead were raised to life. Who wouldn't love that? But then he had to go and speak. He taught. And it was discovered that those, even those good things he was doing were intended as examples and as evidence, both of the people's desperate spiritual need before a holy God and of his personal divine authority as he stood there before them. Authority which was then to be bowed down before, worshipped, served above all else. You remember he asked them back in chapter 10 when they were picking up stones for one of the first times. And he asked them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Tell me, for which one of them are you stoning me? Remember that? And they said, it is not for any of your good works that we stone you, but because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. It was the claims of the purpose, the authority, all the reasons behind his coming that they could not abide. If all Jesus came to do was to hand out freebies, sort of a cosmic version of the old Oprah show, healing for you, bread for you, and for you, the world would love this. But they found that that's not the reason that he came. And my friends, we do very well this morning to remember that that's not the reason that he came. 
We talked last week, we've talked many times about the multifaceted love of God that has come forth, the ways that he has providentially loved the world by caring for the world, providing for the world's needs since the world began. He has been loving in that way as long as there have been humans on this earth. That is not what Christ came for. He came to rescue sinners from eternal judgment. He came so that forgiveness and reconciliation might come to those who were lost in their sin and estranged from their God. And as Jesus is teaching, he's bringing these needs to bear. He's revealing sin. He's revealing bankruptcy spiritually. He's revealing need that only he can supply. And there's this great line that happens a couple of times in the gospel accounts. As he's teaching those who were hostile to him, it says at points, they then perceived that he was talking about them. And they are outraged. How dare he suggest such things? We are good people. God approves of us. You remember the arguments that we've seen in John's gospel here? Who do you think you're talking to? We are Abraham's children. How dare you call us blind? And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing Abraham's works. But he longed to see my day. You're not Abraham's children. You're the children of the devil. It's his works that you do. It's their assessment growing through his ministry of his driving purpose and message in coming to them that determines their overall posture toward him. And when the world is finished with Jesus, what the world winds up demonstrating, what do you know, is exactly what Jesus said in chapter 3 of this gospel is demonstrated by darkness when light comes to it. He said then in verse 19, this is the judgment. The, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, which means what? He is God with us. And as God has come to dwell with sinful man, our needs have been exposed. Our deeds have been exposed. It is not what the world was expecting and what the world was interested in. The world thinks that it best what it needs. My friends, hear this, because this is good for us to hear this morning. Is this how I think? This is how the world thinks. The world thinks what it needs at best is a helping hand. But that generally, what it is worthy of is the divine nod of approval. But Jesus Christ came to us, and when he comes with his message of our need, a need that nothing short, he says, of a second birth is going to be sufficient to reconcile us to God, and that only by entrusting ourselves to him will we be saved. As he comes to us with this, because he comes to the world with this, the conclusion that the world draws is, I hate this man. I hate it. I hate him. Jesus was right when he said of the world, the unbelieving, rebellious world system around him, the world has hated me. 
And if he's right about that, then he's right about the conclusion to that and what that will mean for us. But before we come to us, we need to think about and we need to hear what he says in the middle of this passage. This is very important. He doesn't just state that the world hates him. He takes great pains to explain what their hatred of him is demonstrating to the world around us, is demonstrating in the divine courtroom. Look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Can you hear the really important question that we need to answer as we're reading that? Is there a question ringing in your ears? As you hear verse 22 and verse 24, I mean, this really does beg a question for us. What exactly is Jesus saying about the world's guilt here? Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. First of all, what he literally says is they would not have sinned. The word guilty does not appear here at all, but that doesn't really answer our question. And I would suggest that Jesus' point, let's establish what is very clear from the beginning. It's clearly not suggesting that they literally would not be guilty for any sin if he had not come to the earth to speak to them. That can't be what he is saying, can it? My goodness, why did he come? He came to solve the sin problem for his people. He didn't create the sin problem by his coming. That's obviously not what he's saying here. So what is, what is he saying? The end of the verse makes it very clear that what he is talking about, he's describing from their own point of view. Without his coming, they would still seem to have an excuse. It's the presence of an excuse that's at issue here. They think that they know God. They think they love God. They think their relationship with God is two thumbs up, A-OK. But with the coming of Emmanuel to live and dwell among them, what has happened? God has himself now come down and dwelt with them. And the outcome was, when they finally got to see what he's actually like, and heard what he actually taught, and realized how he really saw them, they hated him. They think they love God, but when they can see him face to face, when they can hear him, what they see and what they hear, they hate. What's happened with the coming of Christ is that regardless of their own self-perception, their own claims, the truth of their relationship to God has now been demonstrated. Because the Son of God has come down, perfectly representing the Father, and has been rejected. By the world. Verse 23 makes the connection. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And then verse 24 again states that connection. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. 
but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The fact of their hatred of God will be put on display in the coming of Christ. But it's not just the fact of their hatred that's displayed here. Because Christ's coming has shown, has revealed the love and the self-giving of God. And because of that, it all winds up proving not only that they have hated God, but that their hatred of God has been utterly unjustified. That's what verse 25 adds. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. You see what has just been proven for all eternity in the eyes of the whole world as Christ has come and been hated, as he has come and brought the love of God, the will to rescue to redeem, to renew, and he's been hated, persecuted, and killed. Their hatred of God has been shown to be unjustified. There is no excuse left to be given. You could paraphrase what Paul writes in the book of Romans. The end result of this is that all mouths have been shut at the judgment seat of Christ. Now we have to think, What does this tell us about the work of our Lord in the world as he's doing this? Because after all, we even see it here, this is work that we are called now to emulate, isn't it? As his people. His coming and the way that it displays the fact of their hatred and the lack of justification for their hatred, the multifaceted way that his work is being accomplished, It's very helpful to us because it shows us that our God is working to achieve more than one objective at the same time. It is certainly true, for example, to say that Christ came to rescue those whom God has chosen and called to himself. But when Christ came, he was not only representing God in salvation, he was also simply representing God. And the results of that when we're thinking, as we are this morning, about the unbelieving world that rejects him, The results entail the fact that his rejection, the hatred of him, the mistreatment of him, it serves a purpose because it demonstrates the hard-heartedness of the world in its rebellion against God. And it demonstrates that never mind what the world would claim with its lips. This is what the world's hatred of Jesus demonstrates. It demonstrates that it stands in enmity against God and is rightly under God's condemnation. And what Christ is telling us here is that is a part of the purpose for which he has come. He has come to rescue, but he has also come to vindicate the judgment of God against the wicked. Their hatred of him has been without cause. Now, we've seen all of this. This gives us such a helpful picture of what Christ is telling us about himself. But we also, this morning, need to make the connection to us, because it is a connection that he makes here. If we live our lives as ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors in this world, then how does all of this inform us? How does it inform us in terms of what we are to expect in this world? But also, how does it help us to know how to judge whether we are truly honoring Christ or not? 
and we're fallen, and we're going to need to ask that question. Remember, later on this evening in the account, Peter is going to take up a sword and chop off a man's ear, thinking that he's honoring Christ. The desire to honor him doesn't necessarily mean we're going to succeed. So we have to be thoughtful about these things. What does this tell us here for us? And we can start with generalities. One thing that this very clearly gives to us is this, as God's people, we must expect that the overall posture as the world comes to know us, the world, we must expect the world's hatred. If he was, so will we be. And the reason for that is very clearly stated here. It's that a servant isn't greater than his master. That's why. If they hated our master, and if we live to represent everything that he, that he is to this world, if they hated him, that means that they must hate everything that his servants represent. The only way for a servant to find approval in that context is for that servant to be unfaithful to representing his master. That's very plain here in this passage. Another thing that we find here is that it must matter to us that the world, when it comes to reject us, that it does it for the same reason that it rejected him. In other words, the Bible is not suddenly here naming it to be a virtue, to be hated. That's not what we're finding here. It's not virtuous to try to live in a way that brings about other people's hatred. Peter has actually a great deal to say about this in one of his epistles. I can't help but wonder if that might not be because of his fiery, impulsive personality that maybe led him through some growing experiences, perhaps, in just exactly this way. We could look at quite a bit in 1 Peter, but I just want us to see one thing in particular. Would you turn for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 4 and find verse 12? If you continue thinking this week about this subject of representing Christ such that the world hates us, 1 Peter would be a great place for you to go and read this week. He speaks about this in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. Uh, he says a lot that's on topic here. 1 Peter 4, 12. Let me read verses 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see his list in verse 15. Let it not be that you would suffer in this life because you are a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. Rather, we are blessed when our suffering is truly a sharing in Christ's sufferings. That's the distinction that he's making here, isn't it? Jesus was hated because as undeniably good as he was, yet he lived and spoke. He stood his ground in this world in a way that made crystal clear the standards of God, that 
we all break and that therefore have required his coming to bring rescue. He's made those things very clear. The true nature of us has fallen men and women. And thus our desperate need for forgiveness and for cleansing. And himself as the only way that such things can come to the world. If we are to suffer, it must be because of standing in those places. We don't pursue suffering for its own sake, do we? No, what we do in seeking to follow after our Lord is we pursue a life of conviction that cares enough about God's truth that the people who know us, by knowing us, are reminded regularly of these gospel truths. They can't become close to me and know me in a meaningful way without finding a regular reminder in their life of the truths of the gospel. That will, give, that will create a reaction one way or another, won't it? It means that Christians in any time, and so Christians in our time, must be committed to standing on truth. We are a people because of our Lord. We are a people who refuse to live by lies. We refuse to perpetuate lies, to encourage lies, to encourage the lies of others. We refuse to do those things, and we refuse because we know that the truth is what sets men free. And that Christ has come to set men free by bringing the light of his truth. So we do these things we, that we do out of obedience to our Lord. And in fact, we do it out of the very divine love that Christ came to bring to the world. And we become in that way the very instruments of his love to the world that he has come to bring rescue to. There's probably not a week that goes by anymore for us that we don't need to be reminded of those very things. And so this morning, we thank God for the reminder that he has given us in his word. And I would close this this morning by reading one more passage from Peter's first epistle here. You might just listen to this and take, take it in. He says in chapter 3, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. My friends, this is the love 
that came into the world when our Savior came. And it is for his sake that we live. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your precious word that you have again gifted us with this morning. Lord, our prayer this morning is simple. We ask that you would purify our hearts, that you would make us wholly devoted to you, that you would give us a great hunger, that when the world encounters us, it would be encountering your saving love coming in the person of your Son. Father, help us to represent you well as we walk through our days. We thank you for your patience and your mercy upon us. We acknowledge so it's you tell us that even as your children, we continue to stumble and fall short in many ways. Lord, help us only to be more clear with those around us that we are not the ones we are pointing to. We are equally desperate in need, but we have found satisfaction for the needs of the human soul. And that satisfaction has a name, the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would make us faithful in our time. Cause us to rejoice at suffering when we are suffering for the sake of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.